Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Yeah, so how's how's things going up in up in Soma Institute land? It's all good here, man. It's a mountain paradise. Been uh, doing lots of landscaping and stuff, and uh, got a ceremony coming up in a couple weeks here. And uh, yeah, all good. When you coming back to BC? I'm I'm in the process of figuring that out. They've got uh, requirements at the border that they'll put put us in a cell if we have nowhere to isolate and stuff like that. So, but I do oh, wow. basically have to return to Canada because I can't go back to you know England or Canterbury from here. Given since I've been away, Brexit and COVID have happened, and everything wow. shut. The retreat center here shut down here, and and the the whole Hermetic conference we had planned for November twenty second, and all my everything that was underway is all just canceled. It's all scrapped. But that's no surprise. Yeah. The world's changed. Oh man, America's on fire, man. There's a trans autonomous zone in Seattle. There. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Like, what is that? What? It's an insurgence, an uprising. Seems like, uh, uh, yeah, they've just taken it over. They're calling it an Antifa uh, takeover, but I don't know how that works with a, you know, kind of uh, organization with no central leadership or anything like that. But uh, 
yeah, anarchy in Seattle, and Trump's not having it. We'll see, he's probably going to bring in the army. And then now the militia that was always uh, talking about Second Amendment rights to deal with tyrannical governments are the brown shirts of the tyrannical government, you know? Yeah, it's it's sort of crazy to actually see it happen. I mean, we knew it was possible, even perhaps likely, but here it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, insanity. Hmm? Insanity. Yeah, insanity. I mean, uh, you 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 had it you had it you had it called. You planned. You knew in advance. You you have built this beautiful place for yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been on an apocalyptic trip for a very long time, <laughs> so I've kind of, uh, I've kind of uh, thought about these things. And But even still, you know, it's still a shock for me to see how it come to light, and it's not like uh, I feel like any sort of I told you so or, or anything like that. It's terrifying to watch all of it take place, and uh, I can't imagine what the second wave of this coronavirus is going to be like in the U.S. either, you know? Yeah, so like, everyone's basically thrown away the, the, the laws and the, the protections here, even where I am in a little sort of, uh, I'm like, you know, 20 minutes outside Santa Rosa, so an hour and a bit outside of Frisco, San Francisco. I say Frisco because I actually like to annoy them. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we were we were controlling it with our behaviors because it's a real thing. This is a real virus. It really exists. And uh, it was only rising at 1% a day. And as of all of this stuff going down, it started, it went up to rising 3%. Then it went up to rising 5%. Then we doubled our cases in Sonoma County. And that's where it's at. It is It is spiking where I'm at right now. At the same yeah. time, well, you know, speaking of, are... speaking of apocalypse and Corona, you ever look at what the uh, first angel of the four, first horseman of the four, four horsemen was uh, given? What was he given again? Disease. Well, he, usually he's like uh, said to represent pestilence, right? Pestilence. But he is given a crown, arrow, and a crown in uh, Latin is Corona, means yeah. crown. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, the novel spike is what gives it its power, and it's kind of symbolic of an arrow if you think about it. You know what I mean? Uh, I've never so been. Yeah, he represents plague, and he's given a corona and an arrow. I mean, I, I've never felt so strange about like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth and those sort of biblical <laughs> conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm wondering, like, uh, um, you know, like the late great planet Earth. So one of the things how Lindsay said would be there be the, this rising of this drug cult. You know, it's one of the signs of the apocalypse, right? And now, you know, like I, uh, you know, as you know, and uh, yeah, but isn't uh, that the pharmaceuticals? Yeah, the the, the, uh, um, the the there's been this archaeological discovery of uh, cannabis at a temple site in Arad, Jerusalem, uh, where cannabis was burned on an altar in a smaller version of the temple uh, site in, in, in uh, right in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, it's tested positive for cannabis resins, you know, uh, uh, which, uh, you know, is exactly where I would have placed it based on the linguistic references around cannabosum. And I think this has the potential to... Uh, fulfill uh lindsey's worst nightmares because uh uh what they're going to find is is this agent uh jewish use is all mixed up with the polytheistic worship that was taking place 
through most of the Old Testament period, it's you know detailed in Kings and Chronicles, where Asherah, the goddess, and other uh, uh, figures are worshipped right alongside Yahweh inside the temple. And the, the form of Judaism we have come down to, this monotheistic form of Judaism, is something that actually arose much later. And uh, um, this all follows with uh, much of the fears of... Uh, 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 of these apocalyptic Christians because uh, what uh, this cannabis was used in a lot of times and why it disappeared in, in, the, in the Hebrew period was this association with the goddess, the queen of heaven, you know, and uh, Jeremiah laments about the, the Israelites burning incense to the queen of heaven. Well, she's like Babylon in Revelation as well, you know, and her cup of abomination is the is the sorcery of the ancient world. And, you know, and everywhere it says sorcery in the book of Revelation, it's the Greek word pharmakia. Yes, and this it is. is from the same uh, root pharmacy. And it makes direct reference to the use of uh, uh, psychoactive plants in, uh, in ritual and magic and stuff like that. And that was what was taking place in this early Christian period with uh, the pagans and also Gnostic Christians. You know, we know from the book of Ayu and other Gnostic documents, uh, accounts of uh, Marcus, uh, 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 and other stuff that they were, they were, these uh, agent Gnostics were clearly using psychoactive substances as well. And so uh, this is all just going to fill in for, uh, for this uh, really crazy time we're in, you know, uh, uh, um, and it is all very apocalyptic. Yeah, it's it's interesting how a lot of uh, how in in translation we conflated different things like pharmacy, theurgy, and goetia uh, into one form of magic, and just thought that ma- all magic was banned. But it was actually pharmakia that was that was considered evil, and the rest were okay. Yeah. Um, and 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 it is it, it's also interesting that um, a lot of people don't realize how different ancient Israel was before and after the reforms of King Josiah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josiah, Hezekiah, and uh, Ezra as well. Ezra plays a big role, you know. When he came back uh, after the, the being, you know, after the Israelites were sent out around the ancient world, when he came back uh, from Persia as a Zoroastrian vassal, uh, uh, um, you know, a Zoroastrian kingdom, yeah. Uh, um, you know, it may well be that a lot of this monotheism didn't really take full control until that time period. You know, he he put all the books together in the way that were, or allegedly put all the books together in the way that we know them, Absolutely. in the order that we know them, and uh, um, put all that stuff together. And, you know, it's interesting with him, there's also an account that a number of scholars have suggested uh, was an account of uh, him taking a cannabis infused wine and we have two different scholars that have written about this and suggested this a century apart didn't know about each other uh, george w brown wrote about it in the 19th century and then uh in, in more recently the professor out of brazil uh, vicente de Buraca, has written that ezra's cup was a cannabis infused wine uh of the of the zoroastrian type you know the zoroastrians took uh infusions like this because they left references to it and identify uh, the plant used as a cannabis. So, so what do you um, make of the fact that 
there was this earlier form of ancient Israel where we all know they had the high places and there was quite a mixture of, of worship with other deities. And that was the same thing in early Christianity too. Like you had to do business with pagans just to economically survive. So of course they would intermix in worships and, and at masses and other pagan temples. And we saw this in ancient Israel as, as well. This was This is not new. Um, and well, I think that was the norm for the ancient world. You know what I mean? Canaan and uh, the, the lands around them were practicing the same sort of religion that was taking place uh, throughout the ancient Near East and Assyria and Babylonia, Phoenicia. Uh, um, all these kingdoms, you know, were polytheistic kingdoms, much like, uh, you know, I think uh, the most comparable thing for us to, to be able to understand is is what India is like now with the same sort of polytheism. And uh, there's indications that even some of these Indian gods are connected with the ancient uh, Near Eastern deities or counterparts, you know what I mean, in this more widespread type of religion, you know. Uh, my parrot's kind of uh, talking with me here, so that's what the beeps and squawks and odd, uh, odd other word is. I love but, that uh, I think that norm and uh, monotheism uh, uh, is the was the new thing you know what I mean it's like you know when you take a look at the archaeology from the area it was like predominantly polytheistic for most of the time and it's there's not a lot of evidence for people like Moses or anything like that based on archaeology and not a lot of evidence for a big you know monotheistic uh, uh, kingdom in there in the, even in in the Bible in the peaks of, uh, of the kingdom period, it's under pagan kings like Solomon. They fell under, you know, guys like Josiah and Hezekiah. That's when they fell to the Assyrians. Yeah, my parents yeah. agree with me here. Oh, you're yeah. You, well, and you know, the, in modern seminaries and theological colleges, they actually they talk about that quite clearly. They're no, under no illusions about what the history actually was. One of the one of the most shocking yeah. things I remember them telling us in grad school was. Look, uh, the ancient Israelites, they weren't even really technically monotheists. They didn't believe that yeah. their God existed and other gods didn't exist. They just believed that their God was the strongest God. Right? It's why Well, even at that point, you know, it's like uh, Asherah, the goddess, was worshipped right alongside Yahweh in the temple as his wife. Yeah. One of the most common things that refer to Yahweh and his wife Asherah. Yeah. So uh, um, it's pretty clear, you know. And think about that for a minute, the effect of, of cutting the goddess out of the theological uh, life of humanity and how that has affected our culture. I would say that um, we... Just one second, I've got to put my turn away. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, while you're doing that, I'll make reference to, um, I think it was while, uh, anyway, there, there's uh, one of the most common forms of uh, archaeological evidence we have of that is basically graffiti um, that makes yeah. that makes fun of Mr. Yahweh banging Mrs. Yahweh. So there, this was a, there's a this was a common thing. It's it's actually not mentioned that much because it was so commonly found. Like you know, even grotesque images representing Mr. and Mrs. Yahweh getting it on. Yeah, well, you know, it's been suggested that the Song of Songs, which is probably one of the most beautiful oh, uh, uh, pieces in the whole Bible, and does contain references to kind of kind of awesome, uh, um, is actually the Hebrew uh, Heros Gamos, sacred marriage, and that this 
was, uh, you know, like a sacred ritual enactment that was taking place, you know, between the, 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 the counterparts of, uh, uh, of God and the goddess on earth, between the, the king and his concubine or the king and his wife or, you know, the priest and priestess, that sort of thing. And that this whole Song of Songs is actually similar to the, the liturgy of Ishtar and Tammuz and uh, uh, similar stuff that was all around the ancient Near East with a time when these things were worshipped in balance. And that was what I was going to say about the uh, the disappearance of the goddess and how that led to the subs, uh, subservient role of women in culture uh, because of this, this relationship in heaven, you know? And all of a sudden it's just the one god that creates all, even creates life like a woman does. And it, it's been one of the greatest travesties of humanity. And I think this is we're at the peak of this, what results from this unbalanced theological relationship is this peak of the patriarchy that we're witnessing right now with uh, what could well be the fall of America, you know, and uh, um, that holds so many of those patriarch ideals dear to the heart. Yeah, the uh, the eradication of, of the goddess and the divine feminine, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, sometimes I think it's underestimated how big a deal it, it is, but then uh, at the same time, we sort of know it's a big deal. I mean, the- yeah. Well, I think that cannabis is, you know, like you know, she, it was definitely intertwined with the with, with the goddess worship. We know this from uh, ancient references from Assyria, uh, Assyria that tie it to uh, uh, Ishtar and even earlier Ishara, as well as uh, you know uh, claims that uh, it was also used in the cult of Asherah, which seems very likely. Uh, um, and uh, Sula Bennett, who the the, the uh, Polish anthropologist. Uh, who uh, she, she, she actually was the first to write about cannabisum being cannabis. She also said in the 30s that uh, uh, the origins of the cannabis cult uh, could be found in the matriarchal circle and the worship of the goddess, which is going on. You know, she was like the, the, the main source of worship for thousands of years. Uh, we know from ancient icons and that type of stuff, you know. And this is where cannabis use and its ritual use originated, according to her. And, you know, according to other researchers, when we consider goddesses like Ishara, which, you know, served as the prototype for the, the Near Eastern goddess that was worshipped all over the place under various names, taking on, you know, various identi- regional identifications, uh, but all originating with one earlier goddess. And uh, um, so, you know, in a way, cannabis, which we, you know, we, we emphasize the female plant of the cannabis plant, and it has some molecular similarities. There's stuff like gamma linoleic and seed, which is only found in human mother's milk and a couple of other rare seed oils. And uh, there's even estrogen like molecules in, in, in cannabis as well, you know, and it, it does have a lot of uh, uh, feminine qualities, you know, and in many ways, I think that this whole spirituality of cannabis is is in a way you know mother gaia reaching out her hand to humanity and offering us this tree of life you know that has potential to heal the planet with things like replacing trees for paper and building products and uh replacing oil for paints and varnish fuel and all plastics all sorts of things you know replacing soil depleting cotton with a more natural healthier more organically grown fiber with feeding the world with one of the most nutritional seeds in the whole world the most digestible source of protein and an incredible medicine that's healing cancers and fucking other diseases healing kids of the epilepsy glaucoma you know epilepsy was considered demonic 
possession in the ancient world up until medieval times. For sure. Cannabis has been used as an epileptic medicine in Assyrian texts and medieval texts. Paracelsus writes about it. Uh, um, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's like a miracle plant. And then here we are, we're finding out it was a sacrament of the ancient world, not only of the Hebrews through this archaeological discovery in Israel, but also the roots of Soma and Haoma through uh, uh, um, other archaeological evidence that's emerging, you know, and the roots of Hinduism's connection with Shiva, uh, and the roots of Zoroastrianism, Zoroaster used cannabis, and he gave it to Vishtaspa and Ardu Viraf and other Zoroastrian figures. And, uh, um, you know, in Taoism, you know, early Taoist writings write about the benefits of cannabis. They burn cannabis to travel to the land of the immortals. In Shintoism, the, the hemp plant is a major part of worship. Hemp paper, hemp cloth all have ritual application in Shintoism. In Sikhism, the Nihang Sikhs, the guardians of the sacred places, have their sacraments. Sukhadun, a uh, cannabis beverage, uh, much like bong, uh, you know, used in, in, in Indian festivals of the Hindus. And, you know, the list goes on with this, man. And yes. Buddhism, Buddhism was said to subsist on one hemp seed a day before announcing his divine revelations. This is like a holy, holy plant, man. Yeah. And it's got more <laughs> healing power in it than all the churches of the fucking world. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fact, man. One cannabis plant has more potential healing power than all the churches of the world. You can grow that plant and fill it with seeds. You can plant those seeds and you can spread them around the world. And it's real medicine with real scientific effects and, and, and uses, you know. And it's beyond religion. And that's the thing about this tree of life, man. It's like uh, the place where fucking science and religion meet. That's where this thing grows and that fertile ground, man. It's the real thing. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's one of the only areas where I actually uh, got in trouble in, in grad school and seminary was with my Hebrew Bible professor. And I loved learning Hebrew and Aramaic because of things like the Psalm of Psalms and getting to read the Targums and stuff. But when it came to certain words, he, he and I didn't see eye to eye. And he actually tried to have me expelled from school. Like it went all the way up to the board of governors and to appeals and everything, and we we basically because I broke up with him as a supervisor, and that happens in academics. Sometimes you break up with your supervisor; it's not the end of the world. Yeah. But he not only he took he really tried to to do me in, and it's amazing how much a tenured professor has. Jim Lindenberger is a well respected professor, and he taught me Aramaic. He's one of the few biblical scholars in the world that teaches biblical Aramaic. Even our Hebrew professor. Uh, a woman, Rahel Halavey, even took the year-long Aramaic course with us because she wanted to learn it because it's an amazing language. And and uh, but he he did not like a lot of these alternative interpretations that he saw as sort of uh, incredulous, of course. Um, despite the fact that um, even oh, well, you know, I did too. Kind of awesome, you know what I mean? It's like I've continually had all the rabbis say it's calamus or lemongrass or one of these other things, you know, one of these other candidates. Yeah. And I've continually made the case, and now it's showing that I was right. You, and that's what you should do is you should send your professor this new archaeological evidence and go, yeah, well, what do you got to say, bro? Yeah, uh, the, the like when when they refused to expel me because I only needed like nine more credits to graduate. Actually, the dean of the university literally sat him down and said, "Can we just let him leave? He's already been accepted into his PhD with you know Goodrich Clark, and can we just let him leave? Do we need to actually 
cause this much of a hassle because of this whatever you however you feel about this guy and he's like no no he didn't want me getting out of there with my degree at all <laughs> people there's so much um the old school um hatred and um, dislike and maybe he has an addicted son to some drugs i don't know what his issues were man i don't know what they were but we see a similar thing that happened with cannabis in america right in the last couple hundred years to how it was um marginalized in the ancient world wouldn't you agree like with the uh there was the whole movement to take it away from being used in crops as a as a resource in in north america Did I lose you? I lost you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was, it was outlawed, you know, in the 37th, but then they had to bring it back for the Second World War because they needed it for ropes and uh, 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 stuff for the Navy and shit like that. But, you know, the first American law was you can pay taxes with it, you know, yeah. uh, um, back in the in the early days of colonial America. And uh, um, it's been a strange relationship, you know, and it's really – a lot of racism that led to its prohibition in, in the first place, not any sort of scientific fact, just straight up racism. And look at America right now and its problem with fucking racism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just saw a, a post about the Calgary chief of police coming out and saying that there's no systemic racism or bias with at all within Calgary police force. <laughs> Yeah, well, Calgary's the fucking Alabama, Alabama of Canada, and one of the most racist places, I'm sure, in Canada. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And that's not coming just from the fact that Vancouverites have a have a have a tiff with Calgary in the flames. That's not just what's going on. There's there's a real systemic problem, and these uprisings, man, it's it's uh, it's not really a shock. Uh, a lot of big intellectuals in the world have been warning us that this was going to come for a very long time. And I just well, I you just, know, if there's ever been a chance for, for the birth of Cascadia. This is the moment. <laughs> I, I you know, just, it's I, like uh, it fragmented, man. It could, could something like that could happen. States could succeed from the union. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, maybe Quebec will join them. Yeah, you know they've always. Well, maybe we could join uh, Washington, Oregon, and California and form a West Coast alliance. I, I, I'd be down with that. I've always <laughs> thought the whole West Coast really was a separate country from the rest of North America. You know. Yeah, I, I think we have more in common than we do with Ottawa or Washington, you know? Oh, hell yeah. Men, the mentality of everything from British Columbia down to Baja, California is so similar. It's so similar. Yeah. Even our accents are quite similar. Yeah, well, there's a lot of racist in Oregon and stuff. You know, there is, like, definitely pockets of these deplorable type of people uh, um, in, in America and in these different areas, but I think the majority are more kind of left kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the area I'm in, in, in Sonoma County in Geyserville, it's it's such a mix of red and blue because it's sort of countryside. The result is actually um, quite a polite environment. Everyone's really nice to each other. No one really gets into politics. We all just sort of want to get along, which is really interesting to be in. I've never been in such a mixed red and blue place before, and it's really interesting to see how it can thrive. Like, everyone's really got each other's backs here, especially because of the, the fires, which keep happening 
Um, you know, I was part of the evacuation of the last Kincaid fire. It was a big deal. Ash was raining down on me for six hours while I wrangled alpacas. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to see people find a way through the polarization and, and find a middle, middle pillar path sort of. Um, I just want to say I just am really yeah. so happy for you that, that this vindication has come from this, these, these altar scrapings showing without a doubt the use of these substances in high ritual in ancient Israel. And you've been saying this for years and you've gotten a lot of flack from mainstream professors and scholars. How wonderful is this? It's, I'm very, very pleased. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm stoked. You know, it's still kind of settling in. I can't say I got like a ton of calls from the press about it or anything <laughs> like that. I have heard some interviews with some of the, you know, the, the, the people, in, you know, academics in Israel, and they have been talking about cannabosum and Asherah. So they're clearly they're they're familiar with. Uh, with, with with what I've written about it and the connections that I've made, which I'm I'm sure are all going to be shown to be accurate, but just based on the this one find, and it's also leading to uh, there's going to be a lot of analysis they say of other altars and sites in 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 the in the Holy Land looking for these same types of things, you know, and but you know it totally fits. They say that the indications are you know that it was like some sort of prepared product. There's no indications of seeds or anything like that so likely an oil type base much like the, the holy oil suggestion uh burnt on uh animal manure so it needed a fuel source to burn and um and animal manure is not like some sort of sacrilegious thing this was a common source of fuel in the ancient world and is still in india and other places um, and uh, they say it was uh, imported because there's no indication that it was grown on the Levant from soil samples from the time period, uh, which fits. You know, in uh, uh, Ezekiel, it's described as coming, Canada is described as coming in on a caravan. And in Jeremiah, he curses it as uh, Canada from a distant land. Yeah. So this is all kind literature. of that. And, so, so it's 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 really solid, and uh, I think it's important. And uh, yeah, it's uh, hopefully leads to more archaeological finds. There has been other archaeological finds in the Holy Land of cannabis. Third century A.D. in Bet Shemesh, they found vials and uh, evidence of burnt vials that, that contained oil of cannabis, and also burnt. Uh, cannabis resin and stuff like that that was used uh, in an as an aid in childbirth from a woman who died of a miscarriage in the and the place where where that was done you know uh, um, so there has you know so that shows that you know 11 centuries after this this Israeli find was you know the first the first one we're talking about is 8th century BC this other one's third century AD so there's an expanse there of 11 centuries, you know, and I think this later find of its use as a medicine and used in, in childbirth and as a topical thing fits well with what I've suggested about the Christian period. It's important to remember that Christ is like the, the Greek translation of Messiah and Messiah makes reference to the one who was anointed with a holy anointing oil, which according to Exodus thirty twenty three, contained about six pounds of cannabis mixed with myrrh, cinnamon, cassia, into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And its use was limited to the, the priests, and then later this was extended to the priests and kings. Uh, 
and um, used inside the Holy of Holies, you know. And, you know, let's take a look at what's taking place in the Holy of Holies with Kenabosom and with what they're suggesting, with what's indicated by this Israeli site, you know. Yeah, in, in Exodus, Moses, he, he, he's like... Uh, First meets the angel of the Lord in flames of fire from within a burning bush, very symbolic. Yeah. And uh, he's commanded to make this holy anointing oil with this cannabosum, which Sula Bennett and myself and others have said is uh, cannabis. And every time he's to speak to the Lord, he's to go inside the uh, tent of the meeting. And, you know, in, in the uh, archaeological find, there's two altars. Uh, one altar had frankincense burnt on it. And the other altar had cannabis burnt on it. And uh, Moses uh, goes into the tent of the meeting, he covers himself in this holy oil, and your skin's a big organ, and can THC and these type of quantities can pass through the barrier, oh, it's fatty, soluble. Right. We've all, we've all and, put on a little bit too much all, oil once in a while, right? Yeah, and uh, um, then he also, you know, uh, burns some of this oil on the altar of incense, right? And he speaks to the Lord over in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense. And the Israelites, nobody else gets to talk to God or see God. They only know Moses is talking to God if tent, if smoke is pouring out of the tent of the meeting. And if it's poured out, it's pretty smoky in there. So they're hotboxing, you know, Scythian-style hotbox. And uh, um, he is speaking to the angel of, Lord, of the Lord in a pillar of smoke that is infused with cannabis resin. So what happens in this scenario is Moses becomes like a shaman who, like in South America or Africa today, uses a psychoactive substance and interprets that sort of psycho, uh, psych, the effects of that psychoactive substance as either a type of possession or a type of communication with uh, divine entities. And so uh, um, this is a real challenge for the theological world, you know, when they start to, when all this starts to sink into them, the implications of this. Yeah. Because uh, um, I'd say as much of a challenge as Darwin's theory of evolution was to the myths of Genesis, because what it shows here is the plant-based shamanic origins of religion itself, something these religions have fought against, you know, in the Christian case, yeah. since their very inception, the, 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 the uh, beginning of the Dark Ages and the suppression of all the pagan cults that use them, as well as the Gnostic Christian sects that use them. And then again, later on, we see this with uh, the, the church's attacks on the Cathars, which used entheogenic substances, and the witches, which yeah. used entheogenic substances. And then when they come into the New World, into Africa, again, we see this, you know, they shut down the Iboga cultures, all this de demonic stuff of peyote use in the New World and uh, mushroom use in the New World. It's all considered witchcraft, and those that use these substances were persecuted into non-existence, basically. They destroyed these traditions. We're only rediscovering them here now again, you know? And so that's another major crime against the ancient world is these plant angels, messengers of the divine have been suppressed and kept from us. And, uh, you know, it, it's like people are waking up with these plants and th th that's very important part of what's taking place in this current era. I think it's very hard for people hermeneutically to cast their minds back to those times and understand that these plants coming out of nature would have been seen as wholly sacred and natural because of this the war on drugs ideology really has still shaped our our conceptions to this day so that it's hard to get our brains around the fact that that these aren't just 
devil drugs or devil's lettuce and that they actually are holy and natural and come out of this very different world ethos that we've almost completely lost touch with in mainstream culture today. But now it's coming back. The goddess is uh, returning. It's coming back. It's always been hidden, you know, like that's what occult means. It's hidden. Yeah. And, you know, my last book, Lever Fort, Cannabis, Magical Herbs and the Occult, and that, that's what that's all about, you know. And you can see, like, you know, I write about the Knights Templar who were in Jerusalem and came into contact with the Hashishin who were practicing similar uh, ritual use of cannabis infusions to that of the Zoroastrians, which came out of the Persia, the same area the Hashishin arose in originally. Yeah. And, uh, um, there's like uh, been claims floating around that the uh, the Templars had an infusion of uh, cannabis wine called the Elixir of Jerusalem. I couldn't find anything earlier than the 20th century making that claim, but I did find back, you know, in uh, uh, ancient, uh, not ancient, but mid uh, 13th uh, century documents. Uh, about the Knights Templar and, and their court cases, uh, that large amounts of cannabis were seized at two Templar sites, and they were listed on the, the list of items uh, 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 seized. I think one of them was like 40 pounds of cannabis, and it just listed it as cannabis. So it's, I doubt it was rope or cloth, you know, it must have been yeah. in something. And they had uh, um, a contract with Saracens in Spain to grow both cannabis and saffron for them. And that wouldn't be an area of the world or a type of people uh, that you would be getting to grow fiber cannabis. This was obviously resin cannabis. So they were, were clearly associated with it. And this may may well be one of the, the great heresies of, uh, of the Templars and one of the secrets uh, about uh, Solomon's Temple and uh, Christianity that they claim to have. Yeah, yeah. It actually sort of makes me reconsider what 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 they might have been talking about with the blood of the Grail, the San Grail, and all that. You well, know. you know, uh, um, the Grails, the, the the term itself is very similar to the term Graha, which is the cup that held Soma, and uh, the the myths of the Grail origin. You know, a lot of it's tied in with per, uh, Persia, Zoroastrian places. You know, and uh, uh, I think there's a real case to be made as. Uh, as the grail being representative of these uh, uh, Zoroastrian and Hashishin cannabis infusions, uh, which offered revelation, you know, and uh, uh, certainly uh, Rabelais indicated this in his wonderful epic comedy and satire, Gargantua and Pantagruel, when he mocked the grail myth, and uh, he incorporated uh, secret references to cannabis into his uh, story uh, under the, the name of the herb Pantagruelian. And this had a huge effect on a lot of uh, occultists and uh, figures going down even into the modern day. It, that's interesting, um, you know, because when, when it comes to maybe having to rewrite religion in terms of entheogenic usage in a, in a ceremonial, in a spiritual capacity, um, I, I, it makes me think a lot about, uh, you know, occult and spiritual practices as well, especially given, I, I think I mentioned to you uh, when we were chatting that I was listening to, uh, well, I've always been very sort of a sober magician and, you know, done done my stuff soberly, and we've talked a lot about that. But hearing, uh, hearing Steve, Dr. Stephen Skinner talk about the need for not using any substances and doing it with a completely sober mind, um, 
I wonder how much his point of view is shaped by coming out of the period he grew up in, the 20th century, during the whole anti-drug war on drug era, and how much that influenced his uh, his belief in magic being done soberly. I think, yeah, you know, a lot of that's like probably William Wynne Westcott influenced. Uh, uh, I don't think he was into it. Uh, but, uh, uh, oh no, Gregor Mathers uh, was not into it, is yeah. what I meant to say. Whereas William Wynne Westcott, in his or, uh, uh, secret student writings, he refers quite specifically to cannabis and opium use for magic and, and the potential of that, you know. I, I, and, and there was like other members of the Golden Dawn and stuff like that that were well into it. George Cecil Jones, Alan Bennett, uh, Yeats, you know. What I mean, I think it was a lot more prevalent than people realize. I wrote a lot about this and offered a lot of evidence uh, um, for this about 19th century occultism and as well as earlier. You know, like I, even the, the, the origins of the Western magical tradition are drug infused. Take a look at the Picatrix, probably the only, you know, probably the foundational document of the Western magical tradition in a yep. 13th century Latin document on the 10th to 11th century Islamic document, the Gaia al-Hakim. And uh, the Picatrix specifically uh, refers to you know, using over a pound of cannabis resin mixed with stag blood and burnt in a ritual setting in order to invoke the messenger of the moon. Uh, um, and refers to the use of opium, nightshades, other drugs as well. So it's all through there. And you know, early writers of, uh, of uh, magic and alchemy, they made reference to this themselves as well. You know, Agrippa... Uh, um, acknowledges the use of nightshades and other substances uh, for magical purposes. Paracelsus, Mandrake, uh, yeah. you know, his his philosopher's stone was thought to be a tincture, you know, a, a, a solid uh, tinctured form of uh, of opium that he kept within a ring or the pommel of his sword or something like that. And uh, what his, his servant said that quite clearly that you know he thought that the 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 the, the, the opium gave him power over countless demons and things. Uh, um, and so it's in there, you know, and in later 16th century documents like Sefer Raziel, Liber Solomonis, or uh, uh, the Book of Oberon, we find references to, to cannabis preparations in order to, to induce mirror scrying. And there's every indication that John Dee and Edward Kelly used this, you know, and in, in, uh, uh, um, in, in Dee's writings, he refers to uh, uh, um, the use of uh, a drink that made one drowsy, you know, in order for doing it. In one of the uh, more hilarious accounts of Edward Kelly, he's uh, conferring with a spirit in the mirror, and the spirit of the mirror says, you know, you have not brought me any drugs. And Kelly opens up the apothecary box and says, but see, my apothecary box is empty. And the, the angel in the mirror responds, well, how about ointments? Do you have any ointments? <laughs> and uh, um, you know, he's talking about witches' ointments, obviously. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like kind of like, I would say in a scenario like that, it's almost Kelly prodding D to go make a score so that they could start talking to something. Because without it, it was not very successful, you know. Uh, um, that was the issue in the ancient world with cannabis in, in Israel. A lot of the conflicts about its prohibition was uh, it was a limited commodity that was very pricey. And uh, without it, the gods did not talk so well, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> um, and so people 
thought it for that reason. And I was, you know, it was really sought after for, for particularly that reason. And a lot of the competition about that led to its uh, prohibition and the turning of uh, the Judaic religion from a shamanic kind of led religion into like a, a, a rule book of uh, codes and taxes and that sort of stuff. Yeah, good old Deuteronomy. Yeah. yeah, if people aren't aware of what happened with Deuteronomy and the King Josiah reforms, they should uh, check out your uh, your uh, Cannabosum, the Cannabis in the Old Testament yeah, docu- well, documentary. Yeah, well, it's been one of the greatest uh, hoaxes of the ancient world, you know. The book of Deuteronomy, second book of the law, was said to have been discovered inside the temple built by Solomon, a pagan king who worshipped the goddess on high and burnt incense to her. Yeah, And part of the reforms were taking out the brazen serpent Moses made that was in the inner temple because the children of Israel had been burning incense unto it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So here we have uh, a book to have been found inside the, the, the temple built by a pagan uh, king, and then uh, um, pagan idolatry of Moses uh, pulled out and destroyed because the children of Israel were burning incense to it. And this book with all these rules about monotheism and how all these other temples aren't supposed to be here, which led to horrendous reforms. Uh, Well, I don't know if you call it reforms because they may have just been initially started that, but they basically went around to all the goddess temples, killed all the priests and priestess, destroyed the temples. Anything that was not Yahweh related was turned into rubble. The representative of those religions murdered yeah. and then a monotheistic takeover uh, instilled in, in the holy land yeah they wanted to turn uh, hill shrines and high places where people could explore their and express their spirituality into centralized controlled ideological religion yeah it's uh it's a cycle that we yeah, keep absolutely. seeing over and over over and over again um one well, of- you know, we're just talking about this well, in the Renaissance period, all this stuff had to be quite hidden because that type of uh, thinking against against uh, these types of stuff was still in place with the church, you know. And we, we, you know, we have horrendous examples from uh, medieval Renaissance uh, Europe of, of the church's atrocities to uh, alchemists, magicians, witches, wise women, all of that type of stuff, Cathars, all of it, you know. It, it's like a horrendous history for sure. So I don't know if I told you this before, but when it goes when it refer, regarding the uh the role of of women and goddess worship in, in daily hebrew culture in the ancient near east um in 2003 uh, a archaeologist who is also a theologian from duke university showed up and gave a presentation based on the dig she had been doing for several years in in the ancient near east or in in the near east and they discovered in all the domiciles in this village that there's you know there's little compartments in the ground where where your treasures would be stored your personal objects they found all of these magical tools and these were in the compartments where the women of the house lived and they weren't the same as like feminine products like combs and brushes they were clearly ritual magical tools and what's shocking is they were found in every single house and this led to the slight change in belief that as much as men were the priests and the leaders in the public life when they stepped outside the home that the women were actually in control and and the revered spiritual leaders of the household even surpassing the role in the religion to the men and this is something coming from this archaeological finds because why would there be all these magical implements in the women's section 
obviously feminine magical in, 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 implements as well as goddess statues and other magical tools in ancient Near Eastern Israelite domiciles. It's amazing. It really throws out. Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was like, it was the commonplace uh, situation. It was not the abnormality. That was the norm. And the monotheism that has come down to us was the new thing that came along, a new way of thinking and new identification. And the world has paid the price, like I say, for that unbalanced patriarchal uh, thing. I think, you know, there's some, you know, I don't know, you know, like with Crowley, I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, think uh, uh, the angel Awas delivered him the, 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 the book of the law, you know, but I think, uh, you know, as, as Israel Regarde said, he got the Zeitgeist right, you know, the Zeitgeist of the generation right, you know, and that, uh, you know, the first period of Isis, the big matriarchal period represents this vast age of the goddess, and then the, the, the age of Osiris, this patriarchal period of the dying god, and uh, we're just in this transition point, this paradigm shift into the age of the, the duality where they come together in this new form, Horus. And I think that, you know, the androgyny that we see in the world today, the, the, the fight against so many of the unbalances of the patriarchy, we're, we're witnessing the fall of the patriarchy. It's not just governments that are falling, but uh, even the church. You take a look at the travesty of the Catholic Church and all the pedophilia that is rampant in it and how much money that they spend trying to defend themselves for their, their rampant pedophilia due to the repression of the sexual urges of their priests uh, coming out abhorrently because they've repressed the natural flow of things. Yeah. And they spend more money on that than they do on serving the poor and they've become the you know that it's just a horror of an organization it's 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 yeah and you know i remember when i was first uh you know studying uh the septuagint translations and our professors told us they said look see this name that saint paul refers to as one of his apostles it says junius which is a guy's name but it wasn't junius and the early textual uh, uh manuscripts we have say julia it was the Apostle Julia. St. Paul had an Apostle Julia. And uh, the, the Marys were also considered to be apostles. The Catholic Church just sort of got rid of that, got rid of uh, female clergy. And, uh, you know. Oh, in Gnosticism, Mary holds a Paul, you know. In Gnosticism, Mary's the most important apostle, uh, clearly, throughout the Gnostic texts, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, she's the premier apostle. Uh, and he says, you know, he was like a radical feminist in his day. Even by, you know, inviting the women to the table to eat in the same way was like a radical usurping of of Judaic culture uh, and and the patriarchal role and the, and, the, and the subsidiary role of women. It even says in the New Testament that the women supported the men for a while, and it's hard to say how that money was made. You know, he did say even the uh, prostitutes will. Enter the kingdom before you to the rich, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, Gnosticism, that 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 sacred feminine really is like you know we got Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, and uh, we also see the role of sacred sexuality in Gnosticism, uh, very comparable to uh, the tantric uh, tradition in, in in India, you know, in, in its philosophy and its practice. And now a word from our sponsors. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. So um, people don't even realize, you know, this stuff about cannabis is one thing. But there was this first few centuries A.D., there were full-on Christian sex cults. One of the most and, common uh, they forms can, they of— they were considered Christian. They weren't— Yeah. One of the most common forms of the church, what they told us in seminary, was uh, the church of the hermaphroditical Christ. Crazy, right? Yeah. That was one of the most common— Well, how about the you know, Paul? Paul's constantly in conflict with Christians, many of whom had met Jesus, unlike him, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, who uh, who are uh, rising up to sexual immorality at the agape, the love feast, you know, that's right in the Bible in Corinthians, you know, and it shows how early this sort of Gnostic uh, sex right practice was taking place in, in Christianity. Yeah, yeah, no, um, the just and, and, and just the change within... Uh, right after Paul's lifetime, I mean, Paul, uh, Paul's uncontested epistles, because you understand there's two kinds of epistles, right? There's the ones we know Paul wrote and the ones that we know Paul probably didn't write. They're sort of pseudo-Paul or the, uh, the, un- the contested. And so like in Paul's writings, he's saying, take your servant, put it at the head of the household, whoever's least shall be first. And then you move forward after Paul died and you look at Colossians, which he probably didn't write. And it says, man is the head of the house like Christ is the head of the church. Boom. Big transition because... Yeah, the, slaves serve your master. Hmm? Pardon? Slaves serve your master. Yeah. Slaves serve your masters, Paul it, says that. It was this very Yeah. Well, you know, shift. my view is in the Bible, it's like Caesar's Bible, man. It was like they, uh, they, they took over the Christian revolution that was taking place. And uh, um, there was a desire to uh, bring Rome under one rule, you know, and you got to think religious groups and sects were much like political parties back in that era. There was no no uh, uh, division of church and state. And, uh, um, you know, when 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 uh, Constantine had his vision of the cross with the banner and this sign thou shalt conquer. This was a you know desire for political monotheism as much as religious, and uh, really that's the story of the Roman Catholic Church. It's Caesar's Bible, and the New Testament, Caesar's book. Yeah. Um, 
if we can change tracks a bit, because I know I don't have you all day. Um, <laughs> um, have you in your? I know you've been talking to Stephen Skinner recently. You think uh, have you have you gotten to ask him yet? Why none of the evoked spirits he's summoned have asked him where his uh, where his ointments are, or why they're he's not sharing any uh, sacred? Yeah, you know, I, I, in in Libra four twenty, I did mention um, Skinner and uh, um, the. Uh, he talked about, you know, fragrances, good, nice, beautiful fragrances for summoning good things, bad, stinky fragrances for summoning evil things, that sort of thing. And I mentioned how divergent that was from how, the, you know, a lot of the ritual fumigations that involve psychoactive substances we can read about and uh, Carl von Eckert Chaucer and uh, the Picatrix and Seferazial and other documents. Uh, you know, had actual psychoactive properties, not just you know, decent smells and stuff like that, you know. And when I was getting uh, interviewed on All Culture, they brought that up, you know, and uh, uh, suggested I debate Skinner, you know. And um, I'm going to say right now, you know, uh, um, I have a, a lot of respect for Skinner's knowledge. I think everyone he is, does. He's a very knowledgeable guy. You know, he's a very knowledgeable guy, and he does acknowledge the role of psychoactive substances in in magic and stuff like that, although he doesn't write about it very openly. Uh, he, he does mention it here and there. And uh, he's been very supportive of my own work, so I know that he kind of he's read my book and knows what I'm talking about. And, uh, we've had uh, uh, you know a lot of uh, corresponding uh, uh, um, since connecting, you know, and talked about things. And I think he's a great guy. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you two have connected. I'm not going to... He's got all these translations. A lot of these magic documents don't have psychoactive substances in them. That's that's not uh, not untrue. Yeah. Not all of them do, uh, but it was definitely a part of it. And some things, you know, they kind of hint at it. Like uh, you know, in some of the Solomonic uh, magic, they're definitely talking about fumigations, but it's unclear what substances they're they're talking about. You know, and there was clearly a desire not to only hide these. Uh, um, uh, substances from the religious authorities of the day, but also from people that were not ready to be dabbling with that type of stuff. You know what I mean? I do. It was maybe something that in some cases was part of a verbal transmission or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, um, so they were, well, there was like a certain uh, uh, unspoken respect for the the power and sanctity of uh, such substances. So it's not always something that was written about openly. But uh, yeah, it's not my place to uh, 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 criticize a scholar like uh, uh, Dr. Skinner. Uh, he, you know, uh, um, he knows what he knows, and he does know about the use of psychoactive substances, whether he does not always make reference to it and whether he uses it in his own practice. He realizes that they were there and that they were in use. Well, I'm curious to see if maybe down the line, though, he uh, experiments with offering one of these plants to a spirit to entice it like Kelly and Dee did. That would be interesting. Well, I've been talking to him a bit about my latest book, you know, uh, that I'm working on or yes. trying to work on. It's been hard to focus let's, on. It let's get into the new book where, where Chris Bennett takes on the OTO. What's that? The new book where Chris Bennett takes on the OTO. Oh, well, I'm not taking on anybody, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, it's, <laughs> it's about the role of drugs in Thelema, and I think the OTO of Crowley's Day uh, differs from the OTO of today 
in both the thoughts of uh, how these substances, uh, the role of these substances, largely suppressed in at least the official OTO documents of the of the modern day. They're not really endorsing them, from what I can see, but certainly in the time of Crowley. Uh, uh, these substances were, were, were clearly used. And Charles Stansfeld Jones, who happens to have lived on the same street I was raised on from birth till I was 13, uh, before I was born, uh, he was uh, offering peyote at the OTO Lodge in North Vancouver on Lonsdale to new initiates in 1915. One of the first things on the reading list for new students was uh, Crowley's The Psychology of Hashish. Yeah. And again, we see the with Jones, when he went to Detroit in uh, 1918, he was uh, uh, giving out peyote uh, tinctures to potential OTO candidates. So it's clearly part of it. And in uh, Secret Rituals of the OTO, uh, they talk about the, the, the bitter cup in, in the initial initiation and it being a psychoactive substance, perhaps opium in some places. Uh, later, the, it suggested that Crowley uh, substituted peyote uh, but uh, there's a whole element of that in, in the early days of, uh, of the thing. And I think if you read uh, Martin Starr's uh, um, The Unknown God about uh, Stone's uh, star student, uh, um, uh, uh, Wilfred Talbot Smith, as well there, it's pretty clear that there was a lot of uh, uh, cannabis and uh, uh, other substances floating around in the early OTO in uh, California as well. Well, I think yeah, yeah. As you know, I spent a few days well, that with. Well, even wrote about hashish and uh, uh, a peyote. You know, he's got the, the 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 poem there where he mentions Don Quixote high on hashish and peyote or something. I can't oh, remember wow. the exact. Book. Yeah, no, but it's I, it's in, in his things, and and he was uh, using that stuff and was trying to invoke Babylon with L. Ron Hubbard, another <laughs> potential drug user. You know, I, I made a. 2003, I made a documentary, L. Ron Hubbard on drugs. Oh, really? And I go in uh, Hubbard. You can find it if you search uh, Hubbard Drugs Occult on YouTube. Oh, it's that's still happening. floating around. That's... It's copied and reposted. Scientologists get it pulled down, but it's full of <laughs> rare archival material. It even has Hubbard himself, audio of Hubbard himself, talking about his good friend uh, Jack Parsons and uh, you know his, his, his pal uh, uh, Crowley as well. How actual audio, he said, you know, Parsons was a great man and had a lot of respect for him. It conflicts a little bit with... Uh, Despite stealing his, his wife and money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> his wife and money. But uh, he seemed to talk to him about with a lot of admiration and respect when he when he later talked about him with, a, with a, as a Scientologist. Uh, um, but uh, definitely lots of drug use and, and influence of magic, uh, Crowley's magic in, in Scientology. I mean, it's like yeah. He was trying to embody the uh, method of science, the name of religion, with Scientology. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, in Crowley's documents, and he's very influenced by Crowley's Book of the Law and other writings. So, lots of stuff there to consider, and uh, lots of great archival footage of that. If you search Hubbard drugs, a call it, you'll find L. Ron Hubbard on drugs, and uh, yeah, funny stuff. Yeah, the Scientologists don't like that stuff being out there. It's actually no surprise that the last episode of Strange Angel, which was really great, um, ends with yeah. with Parsons opening the door and Hubbard being standing there uh, at knocking on the, the the door of the Agape house. And uh, next thing you know, third season's canceled. I wonder yeah, why. Yeah, yeah, well, 
petition Netflix to pick it up or something because I'd be nice to see. Kind of that series kind of lost me with the Austral traveling Crowley. <laughs> it was kind of a little first season was a little better once they brought that and it was kind of a sharp jump for me. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Well, I think we're about at an hour now. And I've got some other stuff to do, but we should uh, pick this up again sometime, brother. Yeah, we should talk more about um, uh, our synchronicities. You and I are both North Shore boys. I grew up on East 13th, uh, 313 East 13th off Lonsdale Ave, and you grew up somewhere relatively close to, uh, what's his name again? Charles uh, Stansfeld Jones. Well, right uh, just a few houses away from Stansfeld Jones on uh, Caledonia Ave. Avenue and Deep Coast. Yeah. Uh, um, and actually, his widow as a kid. Yeah, we should uh, definitely talk about that. Lots yeah. of crazy stuff there. I'm just actually reading uh, uh, J. Edward Cornelius's uh, Crossing the Abyss, which is the uh, story of the relationship of Charles Stansfeld Jones and Crowley, and uh, which we you know was a, you know, he was initially his magical son, but they had a big falling out and parting ways over uh, miscommunication about some lost books. And uh, looking forward to following that with another book about Charles Stansfeld Jones that's just coming out uh, called The uh, Aeon of Mott. And uh, on the street I grew up on in 1948, Jones apparently had this uh, revelatory experience of uh, this Aeon of Matt, which he said uh, surpassed and overtook uh, Crowley's Aeon of Horus, as predicted in the Book of the Law, bringing in the Aeon of Matt, an Aeon of truth and justice. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so kind of uh, wild synchronicities that all around that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And, and then the fact, of course, that you and I basically met at an Enochian working led by Lon Milo and then went to our first Gnostic Mass on the anniversary of the Book of the Law, at which you famously tried to light a joint after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I they didn't know they wouldn't like cannabis. It was like, uh, yeah, you know, Crowley recognized this as a particularly sacred plant and a particularly tied in with the whole thing. I mean, even Wagner, you know, was, uh, uh, according to uh, his, his biggest biographer of his day, uh, was introduced to uh, cannabis indica uh, tincture by Schopenhauer, and it was after his ingestion of uh, of Schopenhauer's tincture that uh, he was inspired to write Parsifal, you know, which is kind of like the foundational theme of uh, of the OTO uh, rituals. And yeah. Stuff. So even at that level, we find the inspiration of cannabis at it. Never mind what Crowley about it. And if you Google search uh, Wagner hashish and my last name Bennett, you'll find an article I wrote about Wagner's uh, uh, relationship to cannabis and how this all relates to the uh, OTO. Do you want to just end by telling any people maybe a bit about what's going on up at Soma Institute? What sort of things are happening there in the future? What what rituals coming? Yeah, up? yeah, but. I've lived in Vancouver for the last 20 years, uh, running my shop there, the Urban Shaman. But uh, during this COVID outbreak, we moved to this retreat that we've got. It's on a three acres. There's a log house and six cabins and a sauna with a wood-fired hot tub and a wood-fired sauna and a 25-foot teepee greenhouses. And this place is called Soma Institute. And we're dedicated to the, the resacralization of the sacred plants and their preservation. And so we're hoping to uh, uh, create a nursery for 
or sacred plants like Banisteria's cappy or kratom or cannabis or sacred cactus like peyote and things like that. We also have bufo alivaris toads, a sacred toad uh, that produces a uh, 5-MeO-DMT uh, uh, venom. Uh, it cause very, very profound spiritual experiences and changes in personality. As a, and yeah. we're hoping to breed those and dedicated to, you know, offer this place for, for ritual ceremonies uh, and uh, a retreat for people that are pursuing the sacred plant medicine path. And, uh, yeah, it uh, uh, was supposed to be, we've been building it for the last year, and we were supposed to open up this spring here, but uh, we've had to scale back somewhat and cancel retreats due to this uh, coronavirus. But then, you know, it's always been that it would serve as an apocalyptic getaway if we needed that it's just come a lot sooner than we were planning in that regard <laughs> yeah well hey at least you got started when you did eh yeah no it's been great out here yeah. to, to be here we've gotten lots of done through uh the quarantine period on the property and made it even better than, than when you were here yeah how's mike doing Mike, he took off to Euclid for the summer. He's uh, He's gone back to living oh. in his treehouse. We've got another <laughs> caretaker here, another buddy of mine, Mark. Uh, and uh, things are, yeah, things are great here, man. Well, I hope to uh, be back up there again soon once I can escape California, eh? Um, yeah, things are going crazy down here. Yeah, yeah. I want to I continue the work yeah, we, if you're we stuck began. For, uh, if you're stuck for a quarantine place... If you're stuck for a quarantine place, let me know. We may have a cabin or something that you can stay in in exchange for some labor or something. Very cool. Um, yeah, I definitely, uh, I mean, you opened my mind to a lot of things when I was up there, when you gave me the tour for a few days. And um, actually, you should, you know what, Let's let, why don't you even post those videos uh, and promote, do a little cross-promotion of this little episode we did here. So I think uh, I'm at a stage now where I've, my work has caught up with what I've been doing, so I'm, I'm at a stage where I can actually integrate that. I'm not that. sure I still have those. Yeah. Uh, I'll sign I'm, I'm I'll not sign sure I still it. have those, but... Yeah, yeah, for no. sure. Sounds good, man. It was okay. It take was care, amazing. brother. Yeah, Talk man, dude. Again. Thanks for talking. I miss you. Much love. Stay strong. All the best, brother. Okay, peace and soon. love. Yeah. Stop that recording. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies 
uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.